So as we look at this passage, it's a long passage, I apologize, but when you look at Acts, you have to kind of get through the story of it. And I, I'm of the personal opinion, the Bible can speak better for itself than I can retell it, okay? So that's why I sometimes we'll read longer passages. But the first thing we need to do is to address our bias. We address our bias. The vision that Peter has, uh, we, we have to realize, is because Peter has a bias against the unclean. Now, when I say bias, what do I mean? Well, a bias is a word that has a very wide range of meaning, from the very most innocent and delicate of preferences to things that are horrific and evil because of bias. So what's an example of, of a small thing, right? Um, we have biases. If, if someone has, if you have a conflict, if someone has a conflict that you know, you tend to take their side in the conflict. Why? Because you have a bias toward them. If you see, uh, you go to watch your, your grandkids or your children play in a sports team, the favorite player is gonna be which one? Your kid, your grandkid. Why? You have a bias toward them. You love them. You have a, a particular affection for them. It's a bias. It makes a distinction in how you think about things. But then there's the other kinds of bias. Those would be things like, that are, that are evil, like racism or uh, bigotry or hatred toward people because of something, whatever it may be. Those things are also bias. The reality is that every person has bias. Sometimes the bias might be against one person because of what they've done to you. So you just don't particularly like that person. You're biased against them. So when I say addressing our bias, I mean any and every bias we might have needs to be addressed when it comes to expanding and sharing the gospel and being faithful to God. Because Peter had a bias. That was a bias that made a lot of sense for him to have. The people of Israel in the Old Testament are commanded to be separate from other people. Now, why is this? Because they, were, because they should hate them? No, but they, had to be, they were chosen to be God's people and to be set apart from the people of the world. So they were given laws and restrictions and rules. What were those for? To show them as the set-apart people of God. And so there was a distinction drawn between the Jews and the non-Jews. And people could become a Jew, but they had to follow the law of the Jews. They had to become like the Jews. Now, at times, this led to people having a distaste or a hatred toward those that were not like them, and that was not what God commanded, but to be separate and set apart, to serve him as their God and to not serve the false idols. Because what do we see often when, pe when the people of God in the Old Testament ignored the command to be set apart? They found themselves acting like the world, acting like those they were called to be set apart from. When they... Would they, when they would deal with and, and uh, move into an area and they would start to intermarry with these people that were not Jewish, they would start to worship false gods. They would start to do the wrong things. And so that was why God called them to be set apart. It was the reason that he gave them the law, to be his distinct people. And this bias initially led to him resisting the idea of God's movement among the Gentiles. When this vision happens, he lets the sheet is let down from heaven and there's all of these foods or animals that would, could be consumed as food that people ate, but Jews were restricted from because of the law. And he says, I have never eaten anything unclean. And what is God's response? Do not call unclean that which I have made Clean. This happens three times, and Peter's wondering about what it means. And then he's told to go to Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Gentile. And a Gentile is anyone who is not Jewish. And so that means that he would be someone that the law would say he should not associate with. 
Not, not that he couldn't talk to him, but he should not go stay in his house. He should not be his guest, or he himself would become unclean. But what is Peter's response? He understands what the vision is. God has told me that I should not call unclean that which he has made clean. So Peter deals with his bias. Now his bias is dealt with by God, but we all carry our own biases. And we have to realize this in our life. And they come from all sorts of sources. What we were taught growing up, you know, one of the things that happens is you figure out a favorite team. Why do you have a bias towards your favorite sports team? Maybe you were taught it growing up. Maybe it was caught. Maybe your friends liked the team. You moved to an area where it was a popular team. Or maybe it's from your own experiences. Maybe that's where you went to college. We have biases that come from all sorts of sources. And so we have to figure out what those are and what bias we have could prevent us from being obedient to God. And that's why we have to address them. It's not wrong in itself to have bias. You, you have people that are your friends that you go do one thing with because it makes sense. You go do, friends with, do certain activities with another friends because it makes sense. They're, you have a bias toward doing this with one group. These are your camping friends and these are your going out to eat friends, right? You have a bias because it makes more sense to do that. But when those biases come in the way of sharing the gospel, imagine Peter said, I can't go to Cornelius, he's a Gentile. I won't do something that would make me unclean. In the face of God telling him to do it, what is that? Disobedience. He's allowing his bias to get in the way of what God is calling him to do. And so what I don't mean by this, I'm not saying that everyone is a terrible person. I'm not saying that everyone has terrible, hateful biases towards other people. But what I do mean is that we all have feelings about lots of things. And those feelings bias us towards some things and away from others. And any time a bias gets in the way of us being faithful to God, it's a problem. And we've seen this throughout history. We've seen where people don't, where two groups of people don't like each other. We see that right now, don't we? In, in the Middle East, Israel and Palestine, they hate each other even though a lot of them are probably related. They hate each other, why? Bias. They were taught it, but now so many of them have experienced it. And there's a bias there. So what happens? Terrible things because of these biases they have. In our life, are there people, this is where you have to examine your heart, what biases do you have? Are there people that if God appeared to you in a vision and said go to this person and talk to them and proclaim to them forgiveness? that you would say, but why, God? I don't want to. There's a bias there, and that's not good. We have to examine our lives for any bias we may have, whether it's small and innocent or whether it's a big bias. We have to remove those things in pursuit of obedience to God, because that's what Peter did. And in doing that, the only way we're able to do that is to understand better the heart of God. We have to understand better the heart of God of God. God's heart was for the inclusion of the unclean as Peter understood them. Sometimes the heart of God is bigger than our minds can handle. We saw that the, the last sermon we looked at in Acts. When Saul was converted, the believers would not believe he was a disciple because they could not imagine that this person was now a follower of Christ. The one who had approved of the killing was going to arrest people now was following Christ but God was bigger than they thought. And now, Peter and the, the other believers that go with him cannot believe that the Holy Spirit has descended on the Gentiles 
but God is bigger than they thought. He was doing more than they had anticipated. So what did God do in including the Gentiles? God fulfilled his initial plan. One thing that's important that we understand here, God did not change his mind. He did not do a course correction to include the Gentiles. This was the plan from the very beginning. When I say beginning, I'm talking about creation. I'm not talking about right then. I'm talking about from creation. The law was fulfilled. And so those restrictions for his people were pre-Christ, to have a distinct people set apart among the nations. So that through that people, this is the promise to Abraham that we're gonna look at later, through that people, the savior of the world might come. Christ, the son of God, the word, the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that all people who would believe, whoever would believe, would not perish but have eternal life. And this is not restricted to the Jews, though they didn't know that yet. So he fulfilled his initial plan. The plan was always that through Christ, all nations might have redemption and salvation through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. What God did not do is he did not change his mind. This is not a, this is not a undoing of something he's done before. It is a fulfillment of his plan. He said, don't call unclean what I have made clean. It is the progression of his plan into what he had initially planned to do, not a changing of what he had been doing before. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. The there's also, we have to understand, a difference between us and Peter. Peter was one of the apostles, one of the, the 12 set apart for the establishing and the, the building of his church initially. And so I don't think that we should be looking for God to appear to us in a vision to explain some new thing to us. Anytime you hear a new thing, you should be wary of it. Now, maybe it's new to you. Maybe there's, I remember the first time I understood or heard what the word grace was. I'd been in church my whole life, but there was one sermon in particular when I was at youth camp that I heard the word grace and I looked it up and it was like I had never heard it before even though I'm confident I'd heard it over and over and over again. It was new to me. But if someone tells you a new thing, well, I know the Bible says this, but let me tell you what God showed me. That is a warning flag. That is a warning thing to see if ever you've ever heard one. This is not an invitation to rewrite scripture. Pursuing the heart of God will take you to scripture, not away from it. It is, it is the fulfillment of the plan of God from the beginning. So this will look like God changing our heart on things that we're wrong about. Pursuing the heart of God will change our minds and will change our hearts, but it won't be about what he's said in his word. It'll be about things that we think wrongly about. Does that make sense? I, God is not gonna come to you and convict you through the Holy Spirit that what he said in the Bible is incorrect. He's gonna convict you and show you by the Holy Spirit that your understanding of what God is doing is wrong. It's too small, it's not big enough, or maybe outright wrong in general. God showed Peter what he was beginning to do. He showed Peter that he was always planning and was beginning to include the Gentiles. And that was hard for Peter to understand at first, but he was obedient. And there will be times where we will encounter things that are hard for us to understand but they will always be in agreement with what God has always been doing. Because this will not look like God telling us things that contradict what he said. Every church I've ever seen that begins to do that, that lets, I know the Bible says this, but I feel like God wants us to do this, very quickly they reject the primary truth of who Christ is. 
they reject that salvation is by Christ and Christ alone. And when they do that, they reject the gospel. They reject the God that has made a way of salvation. The evidence that Peter gave to those who, because in, in Acts chapter 11, we're, we'll reference it, we're not gonna read it. He goes and reports what happens to the church. And initially, they're frustrated with him. Why'd you go eat with those who were uncircumcised? Why'd you go with the non-Jews? And he tells them of what happened. And his reason that he was confident of the movement of God was that the Holy Spirit had shown up among them the same way it had with them. The evidence of what we should see in a person's life who, who, who accepts Christ, the evidence of what we see of God's movement is always the same. Confession of Christ as Lord, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and a changed and changing life. This is what we see when God shows up in people's lives. And sometimes it happens in, in, in times that are difficult for us to understand. But that is where we have to be sensitive to and looking for the movement of God. We have to be sensitive to and looking for the movement of God. Because when we look at chapter 11, the first thing that happens when Peter gets back is that the circumcision party criticized Peter for eating with those who were uncircumcised. What is that saying? He, they knew the law. Don't associate with, to that extent, those who are unclean, those who are non-Jewish. And Peter did that. So they're frustrated with him. And then Peter explains all that he's done. He tells them about his vision. He tells them about the Spirit telling him to go to Cornelius. He tells them about him sharing the gospel and the Holy Spirit descending on them and then baptizing them. And what is their response to this? They fell silent. They glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. There are situations where it is difficult for people to understand what God might be doing. Where things have been difficult before, maybe there was a group or, or a certain person that was very resistant to the gospel, like Saul. And it can cause in your life to be difficult. Like, how can I go share the gospel with him? That was an Ananias' reaction. Are you sure that's who you want me to talk to? He came here to arrest us and throw us in jail. Maybe you have had a bad interaction with whatever your bias is. Whatever it is. Is it getting in the way of sharing the gospel? Because it's, it's, it's not wrong to have biases initially, unless you know they're wrong. But when you know they're wrong, you gotta get rid of them. When you know that they contradict the heart of God, you gotta get rid of them. Because I know there are people that have had bad experiences. There are people that have, have biases that maybe have a, a genuine reason. And one that we'll talk about, I know there are many World War II veterans that to the day they died, they never would buy a Japanese-made car. Why? Because when they were at war, they saw terrible things. And it was difficult for them. They had a hard time because of what they saw. And that bias carried through their life. Now, it wasn't right if they're trying to follow God. But it's understandable. They under, there, there's, you, can, you can see the logic in why they thought that way. But that doesn't give them a right to hold on to it and hold on to hatred. When we see God moving, we should celebrate what he's doing and not fear it. And it's gonna be difficult. It's gonna challenge our understanding. It's gonna push us out of our comfort zone. But it will make us have to, and it will make us have to change in pursuit of the will of God. But just like the believers, when they heard the report from Peter, we should fall silent and we should glorify God at the things he do, he's doing that we didn't expect. We should glorify God that he's bigger than we, than we thought he was. That the things he's doing 
are bigger and better than we could have imagined. When people get saved that, that we maybe initially, because of our bias, wouldn't want to see saved, we've got to change. God's not the one that needs to change, it's us. But when we are faithful, we will see the movement of God in ways that we never imagined. See, they didn't realize that Christ was going worldwide even though he told them. He said, go and make disciples of what? All nations. You'll be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, everywhere. They still didn't get it until this started to happen. This is the fulfilling of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 22. And it is never lost on me the way that God shows things. You ever seen a movie that at the end of it, there's this big plot twist and they kind of show you things throughout the movie that's like, if I'd been paying attention, I could have seen this coming. And then the second time you watch it, you actually, those things actually were there. It wasn't like a, a retelling of it. It was actually there the whole time. That's kind of how the Old Testament is. Genesis 22, the first book of the Bible, when God tells Abraham to take Isaac, his only son, and to sacrifice him, Abraham is obedient. But then God provides the sacrifice. But here's what God says to him. Genesis 22, 15 through 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God fulfilled that promise. And I don't think it was an accident that after he showed the price he would pay because God asked Abraham, give me your only son. But he didn't require it of him. He didn't make him go through with it. But what do we see, John three sixteen? God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. And so this promise he makes upon this act of faith by Abraham, give me your son. You did, and I, I wasn't gonna make you go through with it, but I appreciate that you did that. And through you, all nations will be blessed. How? Because God was planning at that moment to give his only son so that all who would believe would come to salvation. That was the plan from the beginning. And so Jesus fulfilled this promise. And what we're seeing here is that promise beginning to spread to all the nations, all nations being blessed. And, and you know, in human terms, Jesus was the offspring of Abraham. He's descended from, but, but we all know, and you, I hope you know that Jesus is not, was not created. Jesus was not, not in existence before he was born. He is eternal. Because in John 8, 58, it says that in the, in the chapter before that, it says that Abraham longed to see his day. And they're like, well, how could he have longed to see it? You're not even 40 years old. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It was always the plan. Jesus was the fulfillment that all nations would be blessed. He said that Abraham would be blessed because he did not withhold his only son, the very thing that God did for our redemption. 
And as we're coming to this time of invitation, I want you to consider these things of what you have done, what your biases are, whether you have a, a too small of a view about God. Are you pursuing God's heart or your own thoughts and your own opinions? Are you allowing God to work within your life? Are you within your life? Are you being obedient to him? Or are you pursuing what you would like and what you would desire? And the greatest question, do you know him? Have you experienced the salvation that Peter proclaimed to Cornelius? That through Jesus Christ, if we will believe in him, our sins can be forgiven. Because all people apart from Christ are guilty. We are all sinners that deserve, because of our sin, punishment. We deserve separation from God. But God so loved the world, he gave his only son so that whoever would believe would not perish, but have eternal life. I wanna share a story with you as we close of one of the best stories that exemplifies this outside of the Bible. And you look at that, that picture there, and one of them I, I think you might recognize, although he's quite young in that picture. That's Billy Graham on the right, right? You guys hopefully, does anybody know who the left person is? His name is Louis Zamperini. And when I was in high school in my um, world, U.S. history class, um, our teacher told us one of the books we were assigned was a book called Unbroken, which is the story of Louis Zamperini. And it was made into a movie, which you may have seen. It came out around 2014. It was a pretty big movie, I think, at the time, but I never saw it, actually. I only read the book, which is usually kind of goes the opposite way. Um, but Louis grew up pre-World pre War II, and he was a troubled kid from a Christian home. Uh, they, went to, they went to church and, and things like that, but he wasn't a very good kid. He got in trouble with the law. He was stealing things. He was doing a lot of bad stuff. And he got in trouble with police and his brother kind of tried to encourage him, hey, take up running track or something. Find something that's an outlet for you. And so he did, and he was really good. Um, when he was really still very young, he placed eighth in the 1936 Berlin Olympics in the 5,000 meter race. And he was training to be the first person to run a sub four minute mile. Um, closing in on that, but at that time, World War II begins. So he enlists in the Air Force. And he goes and he's a part of the Air Force and he's flying many missions over into the Pacific, into the you know, enemy territory. And one, one of the missions he was on, his plane was shot more than 500 times, uh, but they safely crash landed where there was one casualty. The next mission on a new plane, there were mechanical issues and they crash into the ocean, killing eight of the 11 on board. For 46 days, Louis and the other two men wander at sea, and one of the men did not make it. On the 46th day, they are captured by uh, Japanese soldiers. Louis is then tortured brutally as a prisoner of war, being forced to race, because they knew who he was and knew what he did, against Japanese runners. The one time that he chose to win was beaten the head. And most of this was overseen by a man referred to as the bird. He was especially cruel to Louis and the others. He promised to God that if he got through this, he would follow him. Because at this point, even though he was raised in a Christian home, he didn't follow God. And even though he kind of cleaned his life up, stopped doing all the, the, the law breaking stuff, he still wasn't following God. This misery lasted for two years. And when the war ends, Louis and the others are rescued, and he kisses the ground when he returns to the U.S., and he meets his wife really soon after he gets back and he marries her very quickly after that. But Louis begins to struggle. 
He deals with PTSD. He doesn't have a career because he's been in the military. He's been a runner, and he, but he's also unable to run due to the injuries he sustained as a prisoner of war. So he becomes an alcoholic, and his wife considers divorcing him. But before that happens, she convinces him to attend a Billy Graham crusade that's happening in Los Angeles. And he said, fine, but I'm leaving at the invitation. And the first night he did. But the second night, he went back. And this time, the Lord got a hold of him. And in his own words, I dropped to my knees and for the first time in my life, truly humbled myself before the Lord. I asked him to forgive me for not having kept the promise I made during the war and for my sinful life. I made no excuses. I did not rationalize. I did not blame. He had said, whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I took him at his word, begged for his pardon, and asked Jesus to come into my life. And from this moment on, Louis began to truly follow Christ. And he forgave all of the men who had tortured him while he was imprisoned. Now, we talk about bias. If anyone had a reason to have a bias, it's someone that was tortured for two years, but he forgave him. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that he just forgave him in his heart, because we like to do that, don't we? Oh, I've forgiven them. No, he goes to Japan in 1952 and speaks to the inmates, the prisoners of war, telling them of his forgiveness for them and the reason for it being Jesus Christ. And I think he was able to speak to all that had done this to him except for one, the bird, the worst one. And he was told that he had taken his life and he was saddened by that. Louis was saddened that he didn't get to talk to the worst offender. But years later, when returning in 1998 for the Olympics, he tried to meet with him after learning he was actually alive. Um, but the bird refused. And so Louis, Louis wrote a letter to him. This is what it says. To Mutsuhiro Watanabe, as a prisoner, as a result of my prisoner war experience, under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights, not only as a prisoner of war, but also as a human being, were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble. But thanks to a confrontation with God, through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love has replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war, war criminals at Sugamo Prison. I, then, I asked them about you and was told you'd probably committed harakiri, which was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you would also become a Christian. The example that I hope we take from Peter. The example I hope we take from Louis is that we would not let anything get in the way of proclaiming the gospel, of being obedient to God. 
And if you're here today and you don't know him, you've never made a decision to follow him, to place your trust in him, you've been doing your own thing, living your own way, you need Jesus. You need his forgiveness. Because it's only through God that you can encounter true forgiveness, true peace in a life that is so much bigger than you can possibly imagine. A life that doesn't end when this life ends, but goes on forever. And if that's you this morning, it is so simple. It is to admit that you're a sinner, to believe that Jesus is the son of God who came and died for your sins and was raised on the third day and to confess him as your Lord and Savior. And so this morning, wherever you are, whether you are a believer and have been, is there anything holding you back? Is there any person that you would not share the gospel with? Is there any bias that would prevent you from loving the way that God loves? If there is, seek him today. Seek his heart. And if you don't know him this morning, would you take that step, come forward, and accept him as your Lord and Savior? Because true forgiveness is only found in the work of Christ. There is no other name under which man may be saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for... We hope this sermon has been a blessing to you today. If you have any questions about what you've heard, we would love to hear from you through our church Facebook page, email, or by calling the church office.